1: I want to begin this morning by making a statement which I began with last Sunday. And that is, we know that everyone in the world lives for something. Everyone is compelled by something. Everyone finds something to be the center of their universe. It's why they get up in the morning, it's why they go to work, it's why they do what they do. It consumes their thoughts, it consumes their lives, it consumes their time, it consumes their checkbook. And out there, we have the usual suspects. It's fame, it's fortune, it's happiness, it's maybe something that's just temporary or seasonal, like the end of COVID, getting vaccinated, getting others vaccinated. For us in here, it is the gospel. We are compelled by the gospel. We preach the gospel. We live the gospel. It is because of the gospel that we know Christ. We will see Christ. We will be with Him forever. But I want to add an additional question to how we began this morning, or last morning rather, and that is you can tell truly what is the center of someone's universe, what compels them, and how much it compels them by asking how far are they willing to go. If it's just how they vote, it doesn't really compel them. If they're willing to go and protest, if they're willing to be protested against because of what's written on their hat or on their clothing or on their face mask, then you know it really compels them. They're willing to go pretty far. You put in long hours of work so that you can be happy or think you can be happy by providing, by having nice stuff. Sacrifice comfort and ease for daily runs and workouts so you can look good and get the accolades that you want. When people say, man, you're really fit, you're doing well. And again, in here we all live for the gospel, all believers live for the gospel, but the question is the same. How far are you willing to go for the gospel? And if you say pretty far, I would ask you, is it far enough? And this morning in our context, we're not talking about how far are you willing to live for the gospel we will see from the life of the Apostle Paul, the question is, how far are you willing to go to preach the gospel? To make the God of glory known to the world. How far are you willing to go to evangelize? To let other people know of the saving work of Jesus Christ that they may too live out the gospel. We know that Paul was all in, as we should be. So let's continue our study of 1 Corinthians and be encouraged and convicted by his example of how far he was willing to go for the sake of the gospel. Turn with me to chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we find ourselves in verses 19 through 23, again, still in the wider context of Christian liberty, that is, willing to give up Christian liberty, rights, gray areas for the sake of others. In the narrower context, he's talked about giving up his right to pay as an evangelist, as a minister of the gospel. And now he goes forward and talks about how far he's willing to go, how far he does go, how far he has gone to evangelize the lost. He says, starting in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Why? So that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker in it. We see three commitments here three commitments that Paul has, and three commitments we should have for effective gospel ministry. And again, in this passage, he is talking about evangelistic ministry. I hope you understand that gospel ministry involves more than evangelism. It includes how we live out the gospel, how you live according to the gospel, because of the gospel, for the gospel. The two go hand in hand, though. We can't just share the gospel with unbelievers and live a wretched life. And we can't just live righteously according to the gospel and keep quiet when the world around us is dying. The two go hand in hand. And as we unpack these... Understand that it would be impossible for Paul or anyone to make these types of commitments in evangelism, in gospel ministry, if he wasn't first sold out to the gospel for the gospel and living in light of the gospel. Three commitments for effective gospel ministry. The first commitment he has made and the first commitment we should make make is intentional, intentional slavery, intentional slavery. Again, in verse 19, he says, for for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Last week, we ended in verse 18, where Paul makes a paradoxical statement. Paul says that his pay, his salary, in gospel ministry, is not being paid. His salary is not receiving a salary. And we understood that it was because he had this freedom to be able to preach the gospel, to have no one say that his boast was in his job, in how much money he made, but simply in his ministry and in his God. But it's paradoxical to the world. Imagine someone in the world saying, Oh, yeah, my reward in working 80 hours a week is that I get to not get paid. No one says that. Even this, this uh, popular uh, theme that big tech CEOs have done lately where they only take a dollar for their yearly salary. When you dig deeper, they have tens of millions in stock options every year. So even that, it's not doesn't make sense to the world. It's paradoxical. And here in verse 19, we get another paradoxical statement. He says, I use my freedom to become a slave. Not only is this idea conceptually strange, it is contextually, historically, contextually unthinkable. For a slave in his day to have paid his debt and finally earned his freedom to voluntarily make himself a slave again doesn't make any sense in the Roman world or in any world where slavery was or is a thing. But this is what Paul does. Not literally a slave in that he is owned by another human being and is indebted to that person and is a slave until he pays off that debt. But in many ways, the voluntary slavery is much more difficult. I mean, think about it. When you're forced to give up your rights... It's in many ways easier, because you have to, than choosing to give up your rights on your own. It's hard when the police confiscate something. That's hard. But you have no choice. If someone says, you have a choice, what are you going to do? Then that's hard to give up your rights. Unless, of course, for the Christian, you are compelled by the gospel. We see this gospel compulsion at the end of verse 19. The reason he makes himself a slave to all is because he wants to win people to Christ. This is it. He will sound like a broken record in this passage. So that I may win. So that I may win. So that it may win. Can I translate that for you? For God, for God, for God, for God. For gospel, for gospel, for gospel, for gospel. Others. See, Paul is so focused on God's glory and others' benefit, even his enemies, even those who persecute him, who persecute other Christians, who shake their fists at God. He seeks their benefit and God's glory so much that he chooses the unthinkable. And we are getting way past his choice to no longer eat meat at a temple. If it causes a brother or sister to stumble, we are talking about the entirety of his life. Everything he eats, literally, and we'll see that in a minute. Everything he eats, everything he does. Perhaps how he dresses. Perhaps the language he chooses in that conversation. Perhaps his mannerisms. What he does before he eats, what he does as he walks into a building. All for the sake of others in evangelism. And I call this intentional slavery using both common English definitions of that word. Not only is he doing this on purpose, he's choosing to do this intentionally. It wasn't an accident. He is also doing this for a purpose, with a specific intent. And again, that is for the sake of the cross to win some to Christ. And what he is saying here in verse 19 is he can do this because he is free. Because he has the freedom to choose what he wants to do. He is not a literal literal slave of another human being. He is not enslaved to the highest bidder who pays for the gospel message or whatever message as we saw last week. It is because of his freedom that he can now forgo his freedom for the sake of others. To forego our Christian rights for the sake of others is what Paul is doing, what Paul is modeling, what we should do too. And as with Paul, we are to do this and all things out of love and selfless concern for others. Let me put it this way. The incarcerated criminal currently in prison Has given up drugs, he has given up alcohol, he has given up watching movies for the sake of others, or not for the sake of others, rather. He has no choice. He's a prisoner. They've taken those things away. But the free individual gives up these things for the sake of others because he has a choice. We do it because we have a choice. And that's what Paul is saying. And when we talk about evangelism, I think we've all had that thought. We've even prayed that prayer. I know a member of our church who's praying that prayer right now for her father. That one person you so desperately long to see come to the saving knowledge of God that you say, God, anything. Do anything. I love this man so much that if it means giving him a heart attack, if it means giving him cancer, give him cancer if that's what's going to bring him to Christ. If it means taking away everything I have and putting me on the streets, do that to me if that's what it takes to bring this person to a saving knowledge of you. We've all prayed that prayer for someone. Whatever it takes, Lord. Disease, nightmares, death. I just want him to be saved. Just do it, Lord, Please. But what Paul is doing here is not just for that one particular loved one. He's saying, God, do whatever you need to do, and I will do whatever I need to do for everyone, even those who were so brutal to me when they whipped me that to this day I can't walk straight. My enemies, my persecutors my boss who's mean to me, the guy who took my job, the guy who took the credit for my work and got the promotion that I deserved. What do I need to do to accommodate him for the sake of the gospel? Paul isn't just willing to give it all up. He does give it all up and not just for a particular individual, for everyone. Because beyond his love for others is his love for God. We share the gospel because we love people and that's great. We don't want to see them go to hell. But what's going to make the difference is not just that person not going to hell and your desire for that, but to desire even more than that God's glory through the salvation of unbelievers. That's what's going to drive you past mom and dad and brother and sister to share the gospel and to change your life to be able to share the gospel with those people. And to fully understand the depth of what he's saying and how he lives his life, let me state the obvious. The difference in Roman times between a literal slave and a literal free man was that the former had no rights, whereas the free man did. But because of his love for all men and more so his love for God, he willingly extinguished that very significant difference. Martin Luther captured this paradox well. Same man, same breath wrote this. A Christian man is a free Lord over all things and subject to nobody a Christian man is a ministering servant in all things and subject to everybody. That's what Paul is saying here. But because he is free, because we are subject to no man, we are subject only to God, it is because of that that we are to choose to be subject to everybody. And this helps us understand the paradox. Both are true. And in our next point, Paul expounds on what he has just said in verse 19 as well as Luther's commentary on that verse. And So if you're a little confused on how, to, how that plays out in your life, what does this mean? Let's go to commitment number two for effective evangelistic ministry or gospel ministry, inclusive service. Inclusive service. That is, your service is to include everyone. Like, yeah, I understand what you mean. My BSF group, Grace Church of the Baton. No, no, no. Everyone. Everyone. Look at verses 20 through the beginning of verse 22. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law. Why? So that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So that I might win those without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Now there are several groups that Paul talks about here. They do not translate directly here. We're not just talking about just primarily uh, as a, a major group sharing the gospel with Jews here. You understand he's talking about his life. This translates loosely to all people in our lives, but let's break this down. There are several groups that Paul mentions here as as examples of what he means when he says, I make myself a slave to all. These are all very different groups or types of people that existed in his day that he would have interacted with, seen in the marketplace, sold tents to. But as you'll notice, the goal is always the same, to win them to Christ. Not for a raise, not to look good, not to get into that club, to win them for Christ. First, he says to the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. He is Jewish. He says, I became as a Jew. Right? He is ethnically a Jew. This is his nationality. This is his race. But as a believer now, he no longer practices the rituals and traditions of his people because he knows they are no longer uh, part of what controls him, what he has to do. Christ did away with all of those things, fulfilling them. But in order to win an audience with the Jews to not offend in a way that would close doors to the gospel, Paul is willing to follow those rituals again. You won't let me in here to preach unless I wear a yarmulke? Then I will wear a yarmulke into the synagogue. I don't care. doesn't matter if it opens a door for the gospel. While I'm with this group, Paul says, I know I can eat all things now, but you want me to be kosher? I will be kosher if it means I can sit down at a table with you and tell you that the Messiah has come. You want me to wash my hands in that particular water before we eat? I will wash my hands in that particular water before we eat if it means I can share the Gospel with you. You see, He's no longer legally bound by these rules and traditions, but He is bound by love. He's bound by love for those who are bound by those rules and traditions. As such, he is willing to go through the motions for their salvation, if that's what it takes to win an audience with them. He says the same thing in the rest of verse 20 about those who are under the law. He does clarify what we just said, not being myself under the law. I'm no longer under the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. This is actually different than Jews. He is also speaking of Jews, but here under the law refers more to their religion rather than their traditions. This would also include proselytes to Judaism, that is Gentiles who converted to the religion of Judaism so that they are now under the law, that they were not born Jews. Obviously, there's much overlap with our first group, but this goes back both to the Mosaic Law and the Rabbinic Law. We know that by Jesus' time, thousands of laws were written to extrapolate on the Mosaic Law. If you've ever visited Israel, you know how tedious it can be just to stay at a hotel. Buffet every morning except on the Sabbath because they can't work special elevator that stops on every floor because they can't push elevator buttons on the Sabbath because that's work. That's not the Mosaic law. That's a rabbinic law. And this is what it's talking about for those who are under the law. Clearly, Paul would not in any way imply through his words or through his behavior with these people that these things were necessary for salvation or that they even incur any sort of spiritual benefit. But it opens doors for the gospel, so he's willing to do these things. So in verse 20, Paul is referring to Jewish people. We can learn a lot from this. We hear people knocking on our door, Jehovah's Witness. We get proud, we get angry, we want to make them feel dumb. We want to make them to feel how, how wrong they are about the Scriptures. Or as Paul says, no. You accommodate them to the degree, degree that you can without sin and then get them to hear the gospel. We want to criticize these false religions. We think people who are following these prosperity gospel preachers on TV are idiots. No. They're fools who have been fooled and we need to share the gospel with them. Look at what Paul's willing to do. Dust off the old outfit so he can get into the synagogue. We need to be willing to not be harsh or impatient with other religions. It's frustrating. We, I get it. It robs God of his imp- his glory from people who are using his name wrongly, using his scriptures wrongly, but we need to accommodate because we want to win more to Christ. I mean, this is the very man, the Apostle Paul, that used the statue of an unnamed pagan god as a way to do what he's saying here, to open doors for evangelism there in Athens, And from that, he said, oh, I noticed among all of these statues that were so many that it pricked his conscience. Read the passage. He couldn't sit still. He had to preach. And he said, here's a pagan god. There's probably priestesses who have prostituted themselves in front of this very statue for this. And yet he says, it has no name. Uh Aha, I'm going to use that. Let me tell you about the unnamed god. And then he gives us the greatest evangelistic message and presentation of the gospel that we have in all of Scripture outside of the gospels. How did it all begin? With a pagan God. We can do this, guys. We can learn from him. In verse 21, Paul moves from Jews to Gentiles. That's whom he's referring to as those who are without law those outside of the Mosaic law. All four times he uses this phrase. It's the same Greek phrase. He's talking about Gentiles, non-Jews. This does not mean lawless in the sense of living an irresponsible or immoral life. He's just referring to non-Jews. This is an even broader category than Jews, where we would know specifically what they believe, how they act. What does it mean that he becomes like everyone else? First of all, it would mean that he would not adapt Jewish ways in sharing the gospel with them, their Gentiles. From there, I believe it would be a case-by-case matter, following the customs of the culture and the people, again, to win an audience. Now, there's a very important caveat in verse 21 in which Paul reminds us that he is still under the law of Christ. In other words, though he will adjust to a large degree to appeal to those without the law, he is not free to do whatever Gentiles do, or the Jews for that matter. He still has an obligation to obey Christ and God's moral law. In other words, accommodate on a social level, but do not sin. Do not misrepresent God. Do not water down the gospel do not participate in their pagan or secular worship. And this makes sense because this is why he's doing what he's doing, to honor Christ. He's doing it to honor Christ. You don't dishonor Christ to honor him. It's like the the question I would get a lot of times uh, back when I was in college ministry. I ministered to uh, a a lot of uh, Asian Americans who uh, were really pushed to put uh, studies above church, even by their Christian pastor parents. And they would ask me. they say, I should obey my parents and not go to church, right? Because the Bible says obey your parents. I said, no, if God said obey your parents, so you default to obeying God first. Small group, sure. Men's group, sure, miss it, but not church. Not church. You obey God there. You don't listen to your parents. Pushing them to marry an unbeliever, whatever it may be. And so you understand what he's saying here. You get this. Right? He is not a free agent, he is still under Christ's authority. He is giving up his Christian liberty for the sake of God's glory through preaching of the gospel and the conversion of souls. But he does this for God. And in God's way. So much so that he, even in his freedom, he uses it to become a slave to all. For us, this is a good reminder that we do not preach the gospel by any means. It makes no sense to violate the gospel in order to preach the gospel. You know how many seeker sensitive churches, if you look at their doctrinal statement, it's the same as ours? It's shocking. Because none of that comes through in the sermons, and they justify watering things down, avoiding major uh, parts of the gospel and theological tenets to get people in the door. Because more people in the door, the more we can share the gospel with them. Problem is, they're not sharing the gospel. They're doing exactly what we're saying not to do here, they've taken it too far. So, when we talk about becoming as others to win them, this does not mean engaging in their sinful lifestyles. If you are strongly tempted to do those things, that means don't even be around them when they are engaging in those things. Listen, sometimes we think that way. And my coworker is really into partying and just these hedonistic, there's a lot of drinking and drugs. And I just feel like I can't share the gospel with him unless I go to those things. Didn't you just say he's your coworker? Do you work at that club? Even the most pagan, sinful, hedonistic people have normal lives in society outside of their sin. They have normal jobs. They have families. They are involved in social activities. They have lunch at the work cafeteria. You do not have to give in to their pagan practices or worldly immorality to win them to Christ. In verse 22, he gives us a final category to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. By the way, all of these categories, there would have been converts from these categories in the Corinthian church. And so they would have said, yeah, you did this for me, Paul. You did this for us, Paul. Paul. But who are the weak? Since we're talking about the salvation of the lost, we know that Paul is not talking about the weak that he referred to in chapter 8. Those were Christians, the weaker brother that you may cause to stumble by eating the meat in the temple. Here he's talking about unbelievers. What are weak unbelievers? Well, on a social level, in terms of a group of people, These would be the people that are not necessarily at the same, or not not necessarily, are not at the same social status as you are. They don't have the same background, the same education, the same finances that you have. People that simply because of your job, because of, uh, uh, you know, you go to your job and then you go home and then you have your church, you just don't interact with these people. You work at, at a place where it's primarily white-collar jobs and the blue-collar people come in after work, right, to, to clean up after everyone's gone, to sanitize these days. Perhaps this would mean presenting the gospel in a way that you normally wouldn't. I don't mean watering down. I mean presenting it without the big theological words. Explain what the word sin means. Don't roll your eyes when they ask you what to, what's sin. Maybe it's a simpler presentation. Maybe though you're talking to an adult, you would share the gospel as you would to a child. Maybe not even a child because they go to Sunday school in our church and they, they know these terms. Maybe you would repeat things over and be more patient. For you, this may mean that though you are middle management, you don't avoid sharing the gospel with the janitor or the intern or the parking attendant. The gospel is not too good for the poor and uneducated, so neither are you. And when it comes to our evangelism in 21st century America, America, Again, Paul's categories of people, groups do not translate directly, but we get the point. Whomever it is, we must be willing to accommodate for the sake of the gospel. And this is very important. This is key. This goes beyond just being who you are and sharing the gospel with those who are like you and are within your circles already. This also means to share the gospel with other people, but to go even further. If there is a person or group that you can't seem to connect with, you don't just say, Well, I'm not going to share the gospel with them, I'm going to share it with them. No, you learn how to connect. You learn their culture, you learn their hobbies you read up on these words that you don't understand when he talks about his cycling or his gardening. I don't know what he's talking about. Then go research what that means so that you can win them to Christ. You can find a point of commonality more than just your work if work is not enough. This takes effort. This takes effort. On a social level, you may not care if they accept you or not. Who cares? On a spiritual level, you must care. It's not about you. It's not about wanting to be liked. It's about the gospel. It's about open doors for the gospel. Now, I would say you need to start with where you're at. The Lord has put you somewhere for a purpose and as much as He provides through your job, it's not just for money. It's for the unbelievers around you. The, the, the unbelievers, that their emails are on your phone right now burning a hole in your pocket. People you were just Zooming with two days ago on Friday. That's why you're there, to share the gospel with those people. You know, when we can just take it or leave it, we have the wrong mentality because it's all about money and who pays more. God has put you in that place. You're talking about paying more, just like you. There, there are many other options that your coworkers had. God placed them there so they can meet you, so you could share the gospel. Some of these decisions, some of these people were placed there before you were born. You were born to people in God's sovereignty so that you can share the gospel with mom and dad. Your clients, your patients, your students, your coworkers, your bosses, the CEO, whomever it is. You've heard this referred to as getting out of your comfort zone, but I believe it's more than that. It's getting out of your comfort zone and then familiarizing yourself with their comfort zone so that that becomes your new comfort zone, at least to the degree that they will listen to you preach the truth. In other words, don't just get out of your comfort zone and then enter theirs and then stick out like a sore thumb because it's good for you. It deals with my fear of man. Now, you learn to be like them so that you can share the gospel. And again, all of this will take a little study. It will take constant adjusting. But it's a lot easier in our culture because we are so diverse and accepting. It's a lot easier than it was for Paul where there were clear lines, even uh, boundary markers, certain places that people wouldn't cross the boundary to interact with Gentiles or whatever it may be. It's, it's not like that for us. But there is still a lot we need to learn here. There are still people. If you find out that they are very quiet, find out. Does it make it uncomfortable that you feel the need to fill in the silence? Or do they like that because they know they're quiet? I don't care how you feel. They want you to wear a mask. Wear a mask. Because it goes beyond social and political issues. It goes beyond your health and your life and death. We're talking about eternal souls. Take your time, look, observe, and then preach. See, sometimes there are groups, right? We think this ended in high school, but it didn't. There are groups that we want to be a part of and we feel like we're outside of. And we may want to apply this, and sometimes we get into that group and we feel so good we forget we did that for the gospel, and you don't want to risk, jeopardize your placement in the in-crowd by preaching the gospel. Don't forget why you did that. It's easier in this country, but there are foreigners. There are different people. Earlier I was uh, this week I was having dinner uh, with a couple who just got married on Thursday, and they even said it's very different groom now husband is from Texas very different right when the waiter comes up to you hey how you doing you say hey uh, i'll take the uh, up this up to right they don't really care but she told me she had an experience in Texas where the waiter said hey how you doing she said hey start giving the order and, she, and the waiter goes i said how are you doing cuz there they actually want to know here we don't it's another way of saying hi Learn that. Many of you know that I lived in Albania for a few years, and visited several times before that. And one of, the, one of the things about being a good missionary is you spend a lot of time learning the language. Even if they speak English, you learn the language for their sake and you learn their culture. And a lot of things in other cultures are very rude as opposed to us where we're, we're used to all different you know, melting pots. We may still get offended, but we, we're more understanding, especially in a country that was so close and they don 't have a lot of foreigners because no one wants to go there. they just don 't know that there's other ways of doing things, and so you you learn and one of the things that you do is uh, after someone passes away, this is a very this is a country with not much hope, okay, because of their history, because of their poverty, because everyone wants to get out, but it 's hard to get out so Unlike for Christians, and even to a certain degree, unbelievers in our country who, who, who celebrate life when someone dies, when someone dies there, it's really bad. It's just dark. It's hopeless. I know a couple, unfortunate a good friend of mine, I was a groomsman in his wedding. He moved to America. He passed away in his 30s, and after that, his parents never left the apartment again in Albania. Didn't leave the apartment again. And so one of the things you do, they have their funerals very fast. It's usually day of. We cancel classes. Oh, this person died. we got to go to their funeral. He died last night. And so what happens for days after the person passes is you go to their apartment building. Just picture this old rickety apartment building where the stairwell is open and you go in. And there's tons of people milling around because you go group by group. Right, We had our church group, our our church leadership group, our seminar group. Your family would go, because these apartments are tiny. And so your group would go in, very dark, all the women dressed in black. And you make a beeline for the oldest man in the room. It doesn't matter if there are people holding their hands out. You shake the oldest man in the room's hand first, not just because someone died. That's always and then you sit down. It's very quiet. You just keep mumbling gush lime, gush lime, which is like saying condolences. You generally don't talk much. It's very sad. They usually bring you some juice or some water or some Turkish coffee. You don't spend much time there. There's many people waiting for their turn downstairs. You drink your drink. Don't go too early. Don't go too late. You don't want to be rude. Then everyone gets up. Gushlime, Gushlime, slip some money because they're very poor um, and generally they need more expenses, especially it's a widow. if it's a widow now. Slip a few uh, dollars of cash under the cup that they gave you and then you leave. One time we did this and there was a visitor who was invited to this. His parents were missionaries in Albania. He had visited missionaries. He was there uh, because he was dating and planning to propose uh, Albanian gal, a great gal who was part of our church, part of my young adults' ministry. And we're there. We've done this before. It's very quiet. He's American. We're all sitting, getting ready to sit down. You know, you are know, really quiet. Okay. just His name's not Mike, but Mike, sit down. He's like, no, no, no. I'm going to let her sit. The ladies should sit. Whew. because he brought his American culture in. These people are mourning. and You're going to make waves because you want to be what you consider chivalrous, which they do not, by the way. And I know that bothers some of us because in America there's chivalry. Women sit down, you, you know, we got to be chivalrous. But that's rude there. You're rude if you do that there. And in fact, if you still think that's you should still do that, you're probably a little arrogant thinking that our way is the right way, that what you think is right is the right way. That's our culture. Well, we're Americans. Our culture must be right, right? Wrong. If you have ever traveled outside of America, I guarantee you, you have offended people. But if you have stayed in the tourist areas, they don't care. They accommodate it. They're going to talk behind your back in their own language. But you have offended them. <laughs> and it started with asking for an English menu. Are you kidding me? Come on. They all have them in the big tourist spots. We walk around with our backpacks and our shorts. And you look around. No one wears shorts. No adults wear shorts in this country. They definitely don't wear backpacks. Right, depending on where you go. But we're American. We do what we want. We're loud. You know, we don't even notice that everyone's quiet in the restaurant except for the Americans. Because it's rude to be loud in public places. We don't care. We're American. And this is what we bring into our evangelism with other Americans. My way is the right way. It's the gospel. It doesn't matter. It's the gospel. It does matter. And this brings up a good point. No matter how right you feel it is, you cannot make social and cultural issues more important than the difference between heaven and hell. Stand up against Asian American violence. Thank you. But not as important to me as the gospel. Do black lives matter? Yes, they do. But not as important as the gospel. I'll take brutality and non-acceptance in this society any day of the week if it means I can preach the gospel. This is how we must think and feel and live. This is what Paul did. Beaten to a pulp. Many times. The reality is we are often way more passionate and vocal about political and social issues than we are about eternal issues, and that must change. That must change. Are you willing to be offended for the sake of their salvation? Ultimately, if the unbeliever in your midst is going to be offended, let it because, be because of the gospel presentation, not the gospel presenter. Let them be offended by God and not your personality, your politics, your ignorance of their lives, or even things like your hygiene. Brush your teeth. You always know, we say, well, it's God. God's going to do the work. Look at John the Baptist camel's hair coat, eating locusts and honey, living out in the, the desert. Be my guest. Actually, don't do that. Right? doesn't matter. It's just the fear man. You know, just social norms. This is spiritual. This is the Gospel. I get it. But if they're not going to listen to you because you don't know how to dress properly for the occasion, because you laugh at the wrong moment, because you want to witness to your friend and join him in a cycling club and you don't even know the parts of a bicycle takes work, guys, and it's worth it because we're talking about the gospel. John the Baptist was unique. You follow Paul. You follow Christ, not John the Baptist. I have often said, and I truly believe this, there is a distinction between spiritual maturity and social maturity, but I truly believe the two are very much linked. They have to be because of this passage. You can't just be socially awkward and say, it's okay because I have the Lord and the Lord's going to do the work. Paul is saying, no, you've got, you got to stop being socially awkward. Gentlemen, when you want to buy that piece of clothing and your wife says, hmm, don't buy it. Well, well, I like this pattern. She knows. Okay? She knows. Okay? Buy it. Wear it at home. Bother her. Uh, and you say, but it's clothes. Yes, that's the easy part. Wear a suit when people wear suits. Dress down when people dress down. Ask, call. Hey, what are people wearing to this? This is a casual wedding. I've never been to a wedding. Wedding at the beach. Do I still wear a suit? Find out. Emily Post. Pick up a book on manners. And know if you're dealing. No offense, with a millennial, they probably have different set of manners than Emily Post would tell you. But if you're talking about someone who cares about these things, if you're talking about someone who just moved here and works now there and he's from the UK, find out. Learn. Eat, don't eat. Speak, don't speak. Use their lingo. Do it well. Inclusive service, this is for everyone. Finally, real quickly, we've seen the intentional slavery, the inclusive service. The final commitment is immeasurable sacrifice. Look at the end of verse 22 and verse 23. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. The end of verse 22 summarizes the extent to which Paul goes for the sake of the gospel. He says all things, all men, all means. And again in verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. This is my life, he says. And though this seems like a lot, it's, a, it's simply a small reflection of the Lord himself, the Lord that we serve. Jesus became what we are so that he could save. Paul is simply doing the same to the degree that his finite human abilities allow him. Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Luke 22, 26-27, the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For, he who, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I, Jesus says, am I'm among you as the one who serves. This is what biblical love does. It does everything possible within the bounds of Scripture for the sake of others. And Look at the return in his investment in verse 22. All things in exchange for some. In our world, that's a bad return. That's a bad investment. But in God's kingdom... The effort and sacrifice is worth it, especially when you take into consideration God's glory and His sovereignty. And I'll mention this, as I've mentioned before obeying as a believer, glorifying God in evangelism has nothing to do with converts because you don't do that. You want to glorify God in evangelism? Evangelize. He will convert if He wants to convert. If they're elect, they're elect. Our job is to present and present in this way. At the end of our passage, Paul explains that he does all so that this, uh, does all of this so that he may, quote, become a fellow partaker in it, it being the gospel. Literally, to become a co-partner with others in the gospel. The idea is that he is sharing in the blessings of the gospel with others, which is how the NIV and ESV translate it. By making the gospel known and seeing it work in the lives of others, we find a fellowship with those others. And in turn, as others are helped and blessed, so our own joy and blessing increases. And I guarantee when we get to the point of Paul's convictions that he is willing to make immeasurable sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, then we will also experience immeasurable blessing and joy. Another paradox of the reality of Scripture in the Christian life, the more you give up, the more you gain, the more joy you have, the more you are blessed. And so, three commitments for effective evangelistic ministry intentional slavery, inclusive service, immeasurable sacrifice. Real quickly, I want to make a couple of clarifying points. Remember, this is not just about preaching the gospel by all means necessary, it also means living out the gospel. And so, firstly, to clarify, I've mentioned this already, but becoming all things has its limits. As one of the greatest theologians alive currently said, D.A. Carson, this is not a license for unlimited flexibility. You can't water down the gospel or compromise your ethics. You cannot definitely compromise your monotheism for the sake of the gospel. You are not to sin or violate your conscience for the sake of evangelism. Dressing a certain way or washing your hands before dinner is different than kneeling before an idol or taking a hit of marijuana. You get that. There are limits. Secondly, this is not about the fear of man. This is about the fear of God. We don't capitulate for our own reputation but are willing to make ourselves servants of others for the sake of God. Please don't use the fear of man as an excuse for your sin then cover it up by saying it's to win the lost. In fact, the most powerful exhortation we have in Scripture to avoid the fear of man is in the context of evangelism, Matthew ten You've heard it before. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. He doesn't say, don't fear those who can make fun of you or fire you. He says, don't even fear those who can kill you. Fear God because he controls the soul. So, my friends, how far are you willing to go for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others, for their salvation? The world is willing to go very far for their beliefs. Great discipline, great sacrifice for what they believe in. But with them... There is a consistent pattern, a common thread. They are willing to sacrifice others for themselves. Time with their family, sacrifice their their relationships. You get in my way of my success, you're out of here. I don't need friends like that. Plenty of people get rich stealing other people's money. Other people's innocence and happiness, they're willing to rob and take away for their own happiness and success. To satisfy their own anger, to make a point for their social movement, they're willing to destroy other people's property. But not us. Not us. While they sacrifice others for themselves, We sacrifice ourselves for others. Are you all in in the Christian life? And if you are, does your life reflect that? From your pocketbook to your schedule, from your relationships to your speech. Why? Why do we sacrifice ourselves? For others. Why is it all about others, 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 others? Very simple. Why others? Because we follow and serve the one who sacrificed himself for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to model your sacrifice, your willingness to send your Son that you, Lord Jesus, became something else to save some. May we be willing to do the same, but more importantly, may we get rid of whatever is in our lives that's holding us back, focusing on the wrong things, loving the wrong things, looking like the world for the wrong reasons. Help us to become slaves to others, to become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. Help each and every one of us to know what that means in particular in our lives, where the limits need to be in accordance with our own weaknesses and our own sins. But Lord, may we be so passionate about, our, about your glory that we're not just content living the Christian life in our own lives, in our own bubbles, but that we would seek the salvation of others. Help us not to be occasional gospel sharers, but preachers of the truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.